I guess we're recording the podcast. Hell yeah, podcast yet to be titled. That we decided to name, and we'll fill it in later. <laughs> we'll ADR. Yeah. My name is Spencer Rose. I'm Ashley Chupp. And we're talking about, well, I mean... Let's see, the premise of this show, Spencer and I, we're coming to you as two recovered liberals. Mm -hmm. And we're here to help you get clean off capitalism, basically. Think of us as your sponsors at Capitalists Anonymous. Hey, maybe that's the show title. Ooh, I like that. All right, let's go with that. Okay, welcome to Capitalists Anonymous. (laughs) We're your, your sponsors, Ashley and Spencer. I love that. Um, yeah, so we wanted to, I guess Spencer and I were kind of talking, we both really want to be talking about this kind of stuff, and we don't really have a lot of people in There's our There's not lives. like a good outlet for it, yeah, you know? Yeah, and it's just not really fun to try to force your friends to talk politics with you anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, I was thinking a lot about like what helped me kind of transition from like capitalist liberalism into like actual leftism, socialism. And I realized that it was never talking to people, arguing with people about politics. It was kind of observing other people talk about politics and learning from them. And so I thought, you know, maybe it would be a good resource to just provide like a very entry level kind of, I mean, if you're already like a leftist and you're listening to this, you'll probably find a lot of it remedial, which is fine. I hope you still find it interesting. But the point here is kind of to... um, engage people who are maybe left curious or they just want to understand what the Bernie bros are talking about. Yeah, especially as we get we march ever closer towards 2020 in the the next presidential election. I feel like everybody is kind of looking to be more informed this go round, you know? Yes, exactly. And there's a lot of ideas on the national stage right now that really fall into a territory that is very easily dismissed by other people. But if you were to understand the ideas of Bernie Sanders, of like certain Elizabeth Warren ideals, like start to not fear the word socialism as much. Yeah. Or to show you just how much diversity there is within leftist thinking. Like, for example, Spencer is, you know, a clean cut democratic socialist you can take home to mom. And I'm a black pilled, vape addicted communist whose brain has been poisoned by the computer. Um, Yeah. And you have tattoos. (laughs) Um, but you know, there is, there's a lot of freedom over here. You know, we just, we're not here to gatekeep. We're not here to like focus on like ideological purity. Like obviously we have differences in theory. Um, we're just trying to kind of get people who are like in the center and move them as left as we can. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, that to me is the ultimate goal of socialism is to unify the working class in whatever way that we can. Yeah. So it's kind of cast a broad net to a lot of people. And uh, I think it started, too, when you and I started talking about this, is that we're not, like, experts in any of this stuff, right? Right, exactly. Like I said, we're, we're your sponsors. We're people who've been there before. We used to be liberals. We used to be capitalists. You know, I used to have a very rudimentary understanding of, of class politics and how any of that worked in the world. But I would still notice these problems with capitalism. I just didn't realize that capitalism was the cause. Mm. And so I kept trying to find these like, you know, liberals, they like to blame everything on identity. Um, So I would be like, okay, well, somehow this is the fault of white men. And then it would kind of turn into like, oh, no, I'm ignoring a whole facet of this, the class, like, I'm just completely ignoring class. And it works together with, you know, it's not a lot of leftists, you'll see leftists who are like class only and they don't think that there needs to be any analysis on like race or gender or whatever. I don't agree with that, but it is all it all works together and you cannot analyze any of this shit without taking a 
close look on like class dynamics. Mm-hmm. It's a very introspective look to kind of see where you are in the whole society thing. That's kind of the eye-opening thing that was for me is like once I did do that, of once I kind of opened my eyesight and looked around of it like changes where everything. I was. Exactly, and you start to see everyone as much more of one thing. Yeah, and you notice things systemically, you notice power structures. You're not thinking about like, you know, individuals being shitty so much as how the structures we have in place are oppressing us Mm -hmm. um it's just a big shift and it's it's hard to make alone that's why we're here but yeah we're not experts we're just people who have been there and we know what made us see the light and we're just trying to convey that back to you exactly so let's dive into it i know you have a little bit of like a script prepared of what we want to talk about so let's let's dive into the the script yeah, well, we thought, where do we start first episode? And mm-hmm. I thought, we start at the beginning with class consciousness. So what is class? What does it, or specifically, what is the leftist perspective on class? And, um, you know, what does it mean when people talk about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat? And how do those two classes intersect? All of that. So that's what we are getting into today. Um, I assigned Spencer some readings. Mm-hmm. Um, I did them as well. <laughs> but we... Um, Nerd. <laughs> well, that's why you asked me to to join you on this project exactly um so we are going to be talking just well we just read uh the first section of the communist manifesto called bourgeois and proletarians um where marx and Engels kind of delineate exactly what they mean by those terms and how they came to be and how they interact and then we also read oh hold on let me pull this up exactly we read the last chapter of a book it's available on uh, marxists.org and okay it's a book from 1975 by cliff slaughter called marxism and the class struggle and we read the last chapter of it which is called marxist theory and class consciousness pretty dense um but it was a lot about uh kind of what class warfare looks like once the working class becomes class conscious kind of what marx an an analysis of what marx was saying about class and Mm -hmm. then we also read the good old encyclopedia britannica article on straightforward loved it you know straightforward to the point liked it i love i use britannica as a source all the time they Mm -hmm. rule um so yeah that's what we read and i guess let's just start about let's just say um we'll define proletariat and we'll define bourgeoisie for you Mm mm-hmm Um, There is a footnote on at least my edition of the Communist Manifesto right at the top of the first section, and it says, By bourgeois is meant the people in the class of modern capitalists, owners of the means of social production, and employers of wage labor. By proletarians, the people in the class of modern wage laborers who, having no means of production of their own, are reduced to selling their labor power in order to live. Mm. So Deep. I think um, when we talk about class, not from a leftist perspective, we're usually talking about like the amount of money a person has or like their social status. Um, But when we are talking about class from a Marxist perspective, we're talking about something kind of different. It's similar, but different. We're talking about the role that they play in the process of production. Mm -hmm. Um, So a someone who is part of the bourgeoisie, they are people who, you know, own the means of production, by which we mean the stuff that you use to go to work. You know, I, for example, am a receptionist at a hair salon. I can't be a receptionist at my house. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I need to go to a place that needs me to take their calls. I need a phone. I need a computer. I can't just go do that independently. So I... You certainly could, but <laughs> you would not 
I mean, I wouldn't get any calls. You wouldn't get anything out of it. Actually, it sounds like a great job. Um, (laughs) But so I am a proletarian in this situation. Um, My boss, who owns the salon, who has paid for the place that I go to work, who paid for the computer that I use, for the phone that I use, he is bourgeois. He owns the means of production that I use to do my work. So when we say a lot of this language is kind of... This was written in, what was it, 1848. Um, So a lot of this is kind of industrial, um, factory kind of language. Mm -hmm. Especially in the context of that, of like that's such a new concept at that point of like the industrial boom that was happening all around of how fast technology was scaling up. And uh, I I think it's a very parallel time to now of as we're seeing and like – a lot of my takes on the podcast will be revolving around the presidential candidates, but I know we have whole, uh, like, Andrew Yang talking about automation being the future. That's where this has come up and, yeah. and, and has rang so true with me is, like, the wave of automation that's coming and just the havoc that that's going to wreak on, like, the working class and those means of production. Because then you have a, um, a bourgeois that's, like, you know doesn't see any need for a human worker anymore. And then what does that become within the scheme of everything? Right, exactly. There is, I even found, I highlighted a quote um, in the Communist Manifesto, basically. Yeah, okay. The unceasing improvement of machinery ever more rapidly developing makes the proletariat's livelihood more and more precarious. Exactly. And that's literally, it was true in 1848 and it's true now. Um and under capitalism, it requires us to be constantly working because mm-hmm. we need to generate capital to pay for the things that we need. So we have to work, even though less and less work is available for us to do. And so that's how we end up with just these insane, niche, unnecessary jobs or people who are trying to turn their Twitter feeds into... Careers. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, Patreons for their podcasts. Exactly. Shit like that. Like, people... It's it's forced us to monetize like every fucking moment every of our aspect existence, of it, which is so interesting. Of like, is that the end of like our as far as innovation goes? We're we're supposed to be like creating new ways as the technology comes through, but are we going in the wrong direction with that? Because you're right, we are monetizing every aspect, and that's becoming. So I, I'm in the middle of the job hunt as well. <laughs> so I'm feeling very like I'm selling myself to be like, please, God damn it. Like it's a, all I want to do is work for your whatever company doing whatever. Like I don't care anymore. Um, it's cool. Interesting that you just use the phrase selling yourself because that's literally how uh, Marx and Engels kind of phrase the role of the uh, wage laborer, the proletarian. You are selling your labor to the bourgeois. And the bourgeois class uses your labor to generate more profit for themselves. Mm -hmm. Basically, if you don't own means of production, all you have to sell is your labor. And that's that's the rut I'm in. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's. Oh, wow. Hmm. So I think um, we should clarify a couple of things because this analysis of classes is a little different um, than the other analysis that we mentioned before, which is like based on how much money you have, you know, and. This frame of looking at things, there really isn't a middle class. You are either bourgeois or you are proletarian. Obviously, there's a lot of diversity within those two classes. Um, For example, you'll hear people talk about the petty bourgeoisie, um, and that usually means, you know, you're talking about, like, shop owners or, um, you know, maybe small restaurant owners who are not really cashing it in in the marketplace, but 
Um, they are still playing the role of someone who is buying other people's labor in order to create a profit for themselves. Those people, um, a lot of leftist theorists will kind of anticipate that they would join a revolution of the proletariat if there was one, because ultimately it would be in their best interests to abolish the system of capitalism. But the role that they're playing in capitalism right now is the role of bourgeois. So technically, um, they would be bourgeois. But then you also have people who are technically proletarians who make good money. Um, I think a good example is like my dad, who was a doctor and he never owned his own practice. He always worked out of a hospital. So my dad made great money, um, but technically he was pay- playing the role of someone selling their labor to an employer. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I, I mean, I'm thinking out in like Silicon Valley too. You still have people who are making like millions every single year, and yet you could still consider them um, some sort of producer of some way. Right. And that there is. I mean, the the thing I love about Marx is that he always is very nuanced about all of this stuff. It's not like there's this black and white proletariat and bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. Um, ideally, you know, he says that if the ideally what Marx theorized was that capitalism is going to eventually make things so bad for the proletarians that they will eventually there will be a revolution of some kind. Either capitalism will hit its crisis point and everything will collapse or um, the proletarians will kind of band together. They'll form stronger trade unions. Um, they'll ultimately form a party and then work together to overthrow the capitalists. Um, it's been almost 200 years and neither of those things Still have happened. Still working on it. Um, so, you know, I'm a little cynical that, that we'll ever see it. But basically, the idea being that, like, these petty bourgeoisie types are probably going to be more on the side of the proletarians and these proletarians who are really cashing it in and still holding on to this dream of eventually becoming bourgeois proper, they're probably not going to fight with us. Do you think it's two ends of the same spectrum then? Of like one way super far left would be some sort of, <laughs> not to use a term, would be more proletariat one on the other side. Like would a be sliding more, scale? Yeah, like because you can think like kind of in the middle where you have those petty bourgeois uh, like I think it's just I think it's more just like a bunch of weird subcategories, you know, mm. that kind of like I wish it was easy to make as like pretty as like That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of all the colors scale. you can throw on that <laughs> on that slider and that'd be really cool. But I just don't think it's that like easy. I think it's yeah, it's just like a kind of a mess of subcategories that all kind of have slightly conflicting interests. Mm. And that's kind of why Marx argues that capitalism is truly untenable in the long term, is that you are pitting all of these people's interests against each other. And the more power that the bourgeoisie has, that is, the worse the conditions are for the proletarians. Or, you know, when we've seen times in history when labor unions have been really strong and the labor movement has been like winning um, and revolutionizing like workplace norms like you know we work eight hours a day now and kids don't work that wasn't the case in 1848 Mm -hmm. but every time we see something like that you know we also see the bourgeoisie panic and we see ronald reagan types come in and like you know do everything they can to fuck it up so it's just it's um what we would call a dialectic you know exactly and it's very echoing to today as well of like where we're at with uh the current political landscape of things. Right. Well, yeah, Marx would say that like 
capitalism is just going to make all of this worse and worse and worse until it either collapses or we say enough. Um, I thought something very interesting from the uh, Britannica article was it referenced uh, Rosa Luxemburg, who was, I believe, a Polish um, socialist, who said that what Marx missed was that once we run out of ways to exploit our own people, we go to other countries. And I thought that was really smart because that's why we haven't hit our crisis point yet is because we can go colonize other countries or we can go outsource our labor Mm -hmm. to other countries. There will always be more people to exploit. Yeah. Man, <laughs> it it makes a lot of sense. Like, I, I feel like if there's someone out there listening uh, for the first time, like listening uh, who clicked on this by accident <laughs> or something, uh, I don't know. How does that not make sense to someone of like, oh, aren't we at that point? Like, aren't we there now? Well, I think about this all the time. Like, if we're willing to just let the newspapers call Epstein's death a suicide and just be like cool I'm like what what do they have to do what does the ruling class have to do yeah, I mean, for us to say enough if I were to point to like a catalyst of like why we decided to that was like one of the first things I remember you messaged the <laughs> geek out Instagram account and you said uh, like I need to fucking talk about this like um, Spencer's other podcast mm. geek out is where he has people come on and talk about like the weird shit there, which I still with. would love to do the, the and Epstein I was like, episode. I need to go somewhere to talk about Epstein. Yeah, um, yeah, fuck. It's just like the ruling class is just blatantly doing whatever they want, and obviously these like one percenters, your Epstein's, your Bezos's, your Trumps. You know, they're not the same as like your average bourgeois person like the your boss is probably not they're the super on that villains. same level like, that's like, what they are yeah and we're not you know obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of room within the bourgeois label um the billionaires those are our our primary targets like those those are the ones that i'm like just just guillotine them i don't care the rest <laughs> i i'd be i'd be open to rehabilitating the others yeah i i mean uh, <laughs> I'm going to get lost for words a lot only because there's just such an absurd amount of wealth out there specifically. And like, I don't know, I I always hearken back to the the Notre Dame, like burning. uh, Yeah, yeah. Like the people coming out of the woodwork to like put money towards fixing it. And it's like, what if you put that towards other problems that weren't just that one, like one that had more human element at stake? Um, Bezos, it came out a few days ago that Bezos is uh, cutting health insurance for like some several thousand Whole Foods employees. The man has $113 billion. He could, I think someone did the math and he could give every single one of his employees half a million dollars and still be worth several billion. That's absurd. And he's cutting people's health insurance. That's so upsetting. Yeah, it's, and it's just... To me, it's like if this stuff is happening now and we're seeing it and we're going like, oh, my God, yes, King Bezos, send me to space. Like there is no hope for a revolution, I I think. Like if we're just going to roll over and take it, like at this point, I'm like, I don't know if I'm wasting my breath, but you know me, I'll go to I'll go to my grave still yelling. That's why we podcast. (laughs) Damn it. That's we're going to fix everything. Oh, my God. Um, you know what? While we're here, I want to talk about the concept of class treason or class traitors. Mm-hmm. Um, usually when we talk about that term, we're talking about um, traitors to the proletariat who are like um, – but it can work both ways. You can be a traitor to either class. Um, traitors to the bourgeoisie are like uh, Kropotkin or Engels, like people who are born to wealthy families and then gave that up 
to kind of further the causes of socialism. But more commonly, we see um, people who are working class, who are basically, basically a class trader is anyone in the working class who is working for the interests of the bourgeoisie over the interests of their own class. So that means like people in the military, a lot of the times it means like loss prevention, security guards, like the kind of people who are going to snitch on poor people who are stealing out of necessity. Um, Or like, I'm blanking on other good examples, but I'm sure you can think of plenty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Basically people... I overuse this as a pejorative. Like, I call all the personal assistants to the, like, wealthy people who harass me at work class traders. I don't <laughs> Probably they're just... Do you call them that to their face? Well, not to their face, you but should. when they hang up. <laughs> I thought you cared about this. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's something we see a lot. And I was talking to um, one of my teachers at community college. Um, he is like a socialist. He was kind of like the only socialist I really interacted with at community college. Mm. And he mentioned something that I found very interesting um, where he said a lot of his struggle kind of talking about this stuff with students is that a lot of them kind of view themselves as future bourgeoisie or like, you know, they, they don't want millionaires to be taxed more because they think they're going to be a millionaire one day. And that is a very kind of class traitory mindset where it's like, no, no, like people who are in my situation now can fucking suck it up and deal with it because eventually I'm going to be rich. And when I'm rich, I want to do whatever I want. Yeah. Like an I'll get mine situation. Yeah. Because we sell, I mean, in a capitalist society, what is there to work for other than amassing capital? Like you can't really have a comfortable life without capital. Um, so that's what we're motivated to chase. Um, we get called lazy if we don't have a lot of capital, even if we're working hard. And we're sold this idea that capitalism is a meritocracy and that if you work hard enough and if you're humble and if you're patient, then eventually you will transcend the proletariat and you will get to be one of the bosses and you will get to be a millionaire, which I mean, just statistically is so mm-hmm. unlikely. But for some reason, like we all believe it, like even even I have like internalized it's something I've like really been going through lately is like you need to fucking give up on this. Like, you need to stop thinking that someday you're going to get discovered and make it big. Like, that's just probably statistically not going to happen. And, like, it's just not something to base your happiness and your life on. Yeah. And that's that's how you end up with people who aren't willing to fight for the working class now because they don't see themselves as being a part of it 10 years from now. And it's like, well, 10 years from now, you're still going to be in the working class. And guess what? Things are going to suck even worse because you did nothing. Yeah. What do you think people like fill that need with when they give up? Like if, if you were you were saying you, you feel like you're kind of getting to that point. What do you what do you fill that that <laughs> compulsion for things to be in order? Well, I guess not to get super philosophical, but I've been reading a lot of Camus, um, also a leftist. I believe he was um, kind of a anarchist or anarchist adjacent. Um, and. He wrote this incredible uh, 
book. It's pretty short. It's called The Myth of Sisyphus, and it is kind of a philosophical examination of suicide and, like, Interesting. what is the reason to keep living when you realize that you're just pushing the boulder up the hill all day, every fucking day, and it's never going to end, and there's no point to it, and you're not getting anything out of it. Snap, snap, snap. He literally yeah. <laughs> calls Sisyphus the proletarian of the gods, um, which, like, really fucking hit me, you know, because... Yeah, that's, and that's depressing, though. That's yeah, but okay, but Camus says, you know, once you get to that realization and you realize, like, I'm wasting, you know, my labor is not doing anything meaningful, and there will be no end to it. Um, he says Sisyphus basically finds a way to make his rock his thing. So it's this idea of taking ownership of your own individual suffering and kind of at least doing it in a way that feels validating to you. So, and I think of this a lot when I'm like, I don't know, I can't afford to take the bus home, so I have to walk and it's an hour and 15 minute walk home from work. So I'll go put on a podcast and break out the jewel and like, (laughs) hell yeah, (laughs) you know, just try to enjoy the sights and just have like a nice walk home, even if I don't really want to be walking after a long day and I just try to like make that my thing you know yeah and that's really like that's all you can do and also this shit like getting super into this and it's like even if no one's fucking listening to me even if nothing ever changes like having something to yell about and fight for is I mean it it helps that's really interesting I I think I'm gonna check out that I highly recommend that book yeah yeah the Specifically, yeah, because I mean, once you make it your thing, I guess, yeah, that is the point of it. Oh man, that that makes a lot of sense. I don't know, it's stupid, and I don't want to connect it to like, you know, th- th- this building as much at all, right? Yeah, wham. Uh, <laughs> like, I don't know, that makes sense though, of like why why people do this for free, like. Well, yeah. Um. So we're recording this in the basement of the IO Comedy Theater. Yeah. Um, who, by the way, absolutely endorses our views. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Everything right. we say. Shit, I gotta edit that. <laughs> no, no, whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that if you were to kind of take that idea and apply it here, mm-hmm. um, and also like you see this lie of the meritocracy here. I think about it all the time because I don't really do comedy anymore, but most of my friends do. Yeah, and I watch the way all of these people work so hard and they're patient and they keep their heads down and they just keep thinking that like eventually, you know, I'm gonna make that Herald team or I'm gonna, you know, have a great showcase and get cast in something, and it's just. And then the years go by and and nothing happens and you watch them oh, man. slowly die inside. Oh, no. And it's just like nothing's a meritocracy. Meritocracy doesn't exist. Like, I firmly I believe that. I agree with that. that. I agree with that 100%. So, I don't think that exists at all. Yeah. So anything you do purely has to be for the love of it is the way I see it. For the love of the game, baby. That's why yeah. I do it. And, <laughs> and I get my money back every single time I put on a job uh, application that I once, quote, auditioned for Saturday Night Live <laughs> because I did the showcase. <laughs> Technically. I, I don't tell them that I didn't make it past the first round, but <laughs> whatever. Technically, you did. Yeah. It, it, it's... and. Isn't that what that's all about? It's all about, you know, yeah, just the things you can say to make yourself seem cool. Technically, I almost did. Yeah, like... No, yeah, I think it's like... um, Just more on... I I don't know. I just have more on that. Of, like, I feel like that point of view is also 
people can get there of in that view and maybe that's when people start believing in a meritocracy when they get to their own fucked up worldview of whatever they're doing they are the best at yeah no matter what and like is that a pure way to live well it's fake yeah and to bring it back you see shit like Jeff Bezos does not deserve $113 billion. He did not earn no $113 billion. Nobody in the world does. Like if Jesus Christ came back, you'd still argue like, well, $113 billion is a lot of money. Like, um, I don't know. Let me see if I can find this quote. Is there a quote um, on putting Jesus on a salary? No. <laughs> okay, fuck. Um, fuck, it was... Okay, I don't really know where it is. I'm not going to waste time looking for it. But it, basically the idea was that... Um, kind of the less hard you work mm-hmm. or the less like strenuous your labor is, the more it is valued because people are thinking like, oh, well, not everyone could do that. Like you're what Marx was saying is that like under capitalism, labor is not valued according to how hard you work. Labor is valued according to like how how common it is or like how many people can do it so for example you know the mcdonald's i go to on my lunch break like those people work way fucking harder than any of my friends who like work in advertising like mm-hmm. but they make objectively. a lot yeah, <laughs> yeah like, I objectively mean, retail was the hardest thing i've ever done yeah and and like it sucked i worked at an apple genius bar and i was like i don't there were people who hit 10 years there and i was like i have no fucking idea how you made it this long like yeah i snapped that place broke me those people make less money than people who work less hard because that's not how we value labor which is absurd it's just like teachers i mean yeah think of the fucking nightmare that shit is and while teachers, they don't generate capital for anyone, you know, they're public employees. They're a future promise of capital if yeah. they do their job correctly. But like we don't value their labor because they're not quoting, making yeah. anyone money. Exactly. You know? So that's we're not valuing labor in terms of how hard people are working or how much they're giving. We're valuing it in terms of how much money it's making mm-hmm. for for the capitalists. So, yeah, people are going to be underpaid if they're not generating income i'm getting fired up yeah i'm getting real fired up like i am a receptionist if i leave they can hire anyone else um to answer calls like i am providing a necessary function for the business but i'm not necessarily bringing in more money for them i'm just a necessary thing that they need so my i work for minimum wage because my labor is not valued but the people the stylists at the salon who are bringing in tons of customers every day and are generating a lot of revenue for the salon, they're making really good money because, you know, they're making capital for someone else Mm -hmm. in a way that I'm not. And even though like a lot of days I'm taking over a hundred calls in one day and it's just like, I'm dealing with, you know, frustrated clients or people with complicated demands. You know, I work really hard every day and but it just you know it's just that's not just that's just not how we value labor it's bullshit yeah yeah that i'm I'm thinking of like in that case of banding together of like the worker within the context of the salon that makes sense to me though of like everyone being together to agree to the best demands of everybody i don't know 
Well, you're describing a labor union, my friend. Oh, boy. That is the primary difference to me between uh, Bernie and Liz Warren and why it's there's just no question to me that I support Bernie over Warren is that um, he understands the importance of labor and unions and labor solidarity. And, you know, he has this workplace democracy plan. He plans to, I think he said, like, double union membership. He wants to make it legal for all employees everywhere to strike. Like, these are things that are so insanely important and that no one, no other candidates really seem to think about or talk about. And any leftist really is going to tell you that, like, the way to gain power for the proletariat the only way is by labor solidarity and that's why like that to me is the core of socialism and socialist organizing is like you need to band as many working class people together as possible the easiest and best way to do that is with labor unions um and eventually you know if we i'm very revolutionary i feel like you're probably more like reform oriented um I personally, I mean, like I said, I'm pretty cynical about our chances of getting a revolution together. (laughs) But in theory, I would love to see one. And to me, like the best way, the easiest way that that happens is labor unions. And we strengthen union membership. We make unions bigger. We organize more workplaces. And then people have bargaining chips against the bourgeoisie. And we can fight against capitalists for, you know, our fucking rights and anything that you have that is good like labor unions won that for you your weekend your eight-hour workday the fact that your kids don't have to go to work when they're you know eight years old Mm -hmm. like that is all because of labor unions um i took a history of u.s labor class um a few semesters ago and it was my favorite class i've ever taken like it's just these people have fought so hard for all the things that we just take for granted now um, and they're the way forward. Like they always have been and they always will be. Um, there was this concept, I think in like the 1900s, maybe 1890s, um, of like the one big union where like eventually every laborer will join the same union. And then eventually, if you are following Marxist or like Leninist ideas, we turn that into a party and then we use that party for a revolution um, to take power back from the bourgeoisie, ideally. Um, The IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, they basically took up this upon themselves, this idea of the one big union. Um, Any worker can join the IWW, um, as long as you're not a boss. I'm a member. I highly recommend that you become a member. You have to pay dues, but they have, like, a sliding scale. Um, So if you're, like, broke as fuck like me, you pay, like, $6 a month, Mm. um, which to me is worth it because they're using that money to go organize other workplaces. Um, my friend Gabe, who lives in Portland, said that the IWW organized like a whole chain, a whole fast food chain over there and like got them all in a union. Um, and they will also like provide you help organizing your workplace. So it's not the same as being in like a union for your own workplace, but it's a way to unite as many workers as possible um, to gain more, you know, more rights in the workplace. So I highly recommend checking that out if, if you get the chance. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, that's just, that's just it for me. Like that's the core of anti-capitalism. That's the only way forward is by organized labor. Um, 
and it's just it's just the easiest way to organize people in the working class and it's the most effective and we've seen time and time again how like how this is really just kind of the only thing that works yeah uh, the only advantage that we have over the bourgeois class is that there's a lot fucking more of us than there are of them. So we don't have capital, we don't have means of production, but we've got a shit ton of people. And, you know, the only way that we move forward is by uniting. <sighs> That's a big problem. <laughs> I'll say that much. Uh... Well, yeah, unions are, are just, I mean, post-Reagan, it's just they're almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was in Wisconsin during uh, Scott Walker trying to <clears throat> disband teachers' unions. Ugh, disgusting. It was, yeah, it was the most, like, vitriol. Like, that's when I first learned mostly about the good that unions do um, was watching that whole all, the whole thing happen. I was in Milwaukee, and the dispute was in Madison, but... Uh, it spilled over to Milwaukee a lot because uh, uh, that's where the mayor lives. <laughs> um, uh, just kidding. The mayor lives in Madison. That was a lie. But I saw the mayor in Milwaukee once. <laughs> so that's why I like to think he lives in Milwaukee. Um, but I don't know where I was going with that. Long story short, <laughs> it was bullshit. Yeah. Organize your workplace if you can. I, Scott um... Walker's a piece of shit. <laughs> I... Um... I feel like the moment I really realized that my brother and I could not be friends anymore was like the last time he visited me. He was talking about, um, oh God, I forget his first name, but Frick, this guy, he was like a, I don't know, some big time capitalist in Pittsburgh in like the 1800s. And I used to live in Pittsburgh and there's a park there named after him, Frick Park. And my brother was like, oh, I went to Pittsburgh um, a few weeks ago. I was walking around Frick Park and I was like, oh yeah, that guy. And he was like, yeah, I was like reading about him. Seems like a cool guy. And I was like, the guy who called in Pinkertons to literally murder his striking workers? Like, you think that guy was a cool guy? I don't think I don't think you're coming to visit again. Something something tells me the statues they have of him in the park probably don't have that part of the story <laughs> on there. Yeah. Um and ooh, let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about when uh class struggle gets violent. Um there is this this like that famous Warren Buffett quote that's like class warfare are all I, I'm not saying it exactly. Like class warfare already exists and it's like the rich class who's waging it. Like that that is that is true. I mean, people don't strike just to fucking strike. They strike because you know their rights are being violated. Mm-hmm. Um, I I talk to I whenever I see people striking, I try to talk to them um, as much as possible just to kind of know like why um, w- what they're striking against, what's going on. Um, and I remember I recently saw a small group of like construction workers striking near my work, and I stopped and I was like oh, what's going on? And they were like, oh, the company is um, hiring non-union people. And it's just, like, so fucking shady. Like, they're trying to basically hire non-union people, phase out the, convince them not to join the union, phase out the union people, and then they have, you know, employees they can exploit to do whatever, whenever. Yeah. Did they have a big rat? <laughs> there's no. been, I've seen a ton of big rats lately. Yeah, I love um, the big rats. There's a construction uh, project at the end of my street that's having a lot of issues. Same exact thing of they're hiring non-union people. Yeah, and the rat was there for a while. Yeah, and it's just so sometimes these. I mean, it rules to live in Chicago because this is such 
a an historic town when it comes to uh, labor and labor history. Like the Haymarket riots, it's like maybe the most iconic labor riot in all of history happened here. And it's just like capitalists will stop at nothing to protect their themselves and their income. And strikes are really the only tool we have. But when strikes start to not work, then it's kind of inevitable that things are going to get rowdy. Mm-hmm. They're going to get violent. Um, so, for example, at the Haymarket riots, it was people started getting louder and they started getting more annoying. And then eventually the police shot them because that's what they fucking do. Um, and so it's just uprising, union uprising or like labor class uprising is kind of what Marx saw as an inevitability um, that hopefully will lead to revolution. But I feel like capitalist collapse is maybe the more um the more realistic option because i think shit like this i mean and it's not even just with labor like we see this happen all the time now when it comes to like you know racist police people killing black men and shit like that like people are protesting more and more and you try to sometimes peaceful protest doesn't work and sometimes the other side brings violence into it and what are you going to do just look yeah at- i mean look at hong kong right now of like what they're going through as far as violence but eh, i mean that's a different story yeah i was i was gonna say the i mean i'm not the protesters there are not 100 percent uh the things they're fighting for are not necessarily um things i agree with but like but there is you can't deny that like a lot of this shit people don't you know riot is the language of the unheard is that is that am i butchering that quote i believe john lennon said that no what? i don't know I thought that was martin <laughs> luther king no it was uh it was shaggy <laughs> yeah. um but basically like it's just something we have to think about and mm-hmm. we have to maybe make ourselves comfortable with it's, but, uh, i mean just looking at where we're at in the current situation uh, and i've said that i think if i if i had a dollar for every time i said that but uh everything you're describing is stuff that's still happening exactly if not increasing in frequency but i think what scares a lot of people off from you know sticking it to the capitalists and standing up for themselves is this fear of things getting violent and it's like and a lot of people will try to sell you like oh well it doesn't have to be will be liberals love to peaceful protest you know they love to put on their pink pussy hats and like wave a sign out on a park and it's like it's just maybe something you have to square up with is that like there is no way forward without things getting tough you know there are the the Bolsheviks did not just gently ask the Tsars to leave and take over. Like, yeah, it's not it's not easy. Um, but I, I but I don't want that to discourage people from fighting. I think that that is just that's where we differ. Yeah, <laughs> just kidding. No, I'm also uh, I'm very much against any sort of violent aspect to it. I think it loses the impact if like because it should be for for all people. You know, like for for everybody. And, like, we should all get to a point. I know you're going to disagree no. with that 100%. But it's fine. And that's why we're both here on this podcast. Exactly. So you can agree with one of us yeah. or the other. Um, but I guess, yeah, I'm, I don't speak for Spencer here. I'm speaking just for myself. Mm-hmm. I think that that's just maybe something we have to think about and be prepared it's for. It's definitely something to consider of, like, on the table of, like, there are certainly are reasons. 
Um, but it's just not something I personally would ever want to see or have things come to. Nobody wants to see that. But I think if it gets to the point where it's like get violent or lose the game, I'm 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 fighting. I'm choosing to fight. It's hard. It's hard when you don't know how long the game is. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it becomes the question of like, when was too soon? I don't know. No, I never play the game Detroit Become Human. Man, (laughs) what a game. Uh, It's uh, just all about that of like the uprising of a collective group of people versus the means of production owners. It's about like people owning robots and the robots gaining sentience. It's totally, (laughs) it's a thinly veiled thing on socialism. Um, But it was an interesting. There's multiple ways to play it, and you can play it violent or you can play it not violent. And it's, I don't know. I just always, in that world, nonviolent, it worked. Well, I'm happy for that world. And honestly, Who I knows? will say. This could be the world of robots. I would say I would not be advocating. I mean, I would never advocate for violence, but I would not be considering violence as an option if if the other side were not consistently violent towards us first. That makes sense. You know, and that's just what it comes down to is like capitalism is, it's inherently violent. It is. That's true. (laughs) I mean, we don't see it here as, as certainly as much as it's happening elsewhere. Well, yeah. I mean, especially in our little bubble here, I mean, I'm sure, you know, the homeless people we pass on the streets would beg to differ, but, um, yeah. Okay. Was there anything else that you felt we needed to? No, I think we on? we ended on a call for for war. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah. Uh, Guillotine Jeff Bezos. <laughs> um. Yeah. So we hope to kind of cover like a new topic mm-hmm. each episode that we do. Um. If you have ideas for things that you would like explained or um things that you're afraid to ask about yeah. you know because we really want to like i know it can be really tough if you're new to the left because i need i need questions. a lot of information too so i'd love anyone's questions so i can go off yeah, and research I'm things always happy to research something new i mean that's what we're here for if it's something you just don't feel like researching mm-hmm. for uh we'll do it for you hell yeah um and yeah i just i know how intimidating it can be to kind of be new to the left and not really know what everyone's talking about and maybe there's a term you're hearing a lot and you don't know like we're happy to to research it and explain it um yeah i guess was there anything else we need no i think that's good okay see uh, tune in next week for another cool topic that i'll start yelling about hell yeah 